Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 20 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in for episode number 20 of the show. I'm so excited that we got to episode 20 and there's more to come. And it's all thanks to you guys. So I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for tuning in every week, for sharing the show around on Facebook, liking it, commenting it, subscribing on iTunes, messaging me and just telling your friends. I appreciate it so much. It allows the show to uh, be spread around by word of mouth. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. The show keeps growing every week, and it's all thanks to you guys. So thank you so much. It helps to um, keep me motivated hearing from you guys and knowing that you're enjoying the show and that it's making a little bit of a difference out there in the world. Some exciting things coming for the show. I've got Di Henwood, a famous New Zealand comedian, coming on the show. That won't be for uh, another couple of weeks. Di's pretty busy, but that's something to look forward to in the future. And I just got off the phone with All Blacks captain, or former All Blacks captain, Norm Hewitt, uh, who is also loving what we're up to and loves the vision of the show and can't wait to come on the show in a couple of weeks. So, so excited to have those people sharing the vision of the show and coming on. And I'm really, really excited to dive in deep with them and share their story with you guys. Uh, Personally, for me, I'm just uh, drawing to the end of a very busy work period. I'm still offering 100 free, powerful coaching sessions with me, which is something I'm only going to do once. Uh, because it's it's hard work, but I'm really enjoying the challenge. I've got 27 scheduled uh, calls on the book, so there's still a lot more sessions available if you want to get in and get a free session. Uh, it's no obligation, it's just a chance for you to experience my coaching and maybe get a little bit of direction in your life or in your business, and you're welcome to book that at any time. You can go onto my calendar online, it's at meetme so slash Nathan R. Seawood and anyone anyone is welcome to go in and book that there it pops up on my calendar with your details so I'll see that if you do that so that's been pretty busy that's kept me really busy the last couple of weeks and I noticed myself starting to get a little bit exhausted a little bit um, run down and those of you that know me know that I'm always uh, struggling with this inner drive to make a difference and do more and kind of battling that with um needing to slow down and get some rest, which I'm not very good at. I kind of have this feeling like that if I stop, that everything will go away. I have this deep feeling that if I just stop now, then, I don't know, I'm going to lose everything. Everything's going to disappear. And also if I stop, that I'm going to kind of collapse. So I kind of end up in this, you know, this constant drive, struggle, keep adding things and keep striving forward and forward and forward and more and more and more and eventually get to breaking point, which is a... A cycle that I'm very familiar with and one that I'm not keen to keep repeating. So I'm off to Hawaii. Shinya and I are going to Hawaii for the next two weeks and we're just going to relax by the beach, which I'm so, so excited about just to put the phone and the laptop away and just chill out and recover to um, come back stronger. So that's going to be me. Episode next week will uh, is already in the can, so that'll be pre-recorded. So you'll get another couple of episodes before I'm back in Japan to record the next one. This week I spoke to a really interesting guy, Jero Taylor. Jero had such a fascinating story and a backstory that I didn't really know about. You'll hear all about it, but he was raised by uh, a Japanese mum, British father in Hong Kong, and his mum was uh, and still is heavily into the Jehovah's Witness religion, which uh, defined a lot of Jero's life. And then he's been on an epic journey literally traveling all around the world, been high up in the corporate ladder, been number one in a huge uh, corporation in London and Hong Kong, and is now 
running a really cool company called the Flow State Collective that is helping uh, individuals and now more and more the collective uh, world find more flow so that we can be more in harmony. He's got an amazing story. We had an awesome conversation. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. And we start off when I ask him to tell me a little bit more about his upbringing in Hong Kong. So enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Jero Taylor. Yeah, so I was uh, born in Hong Kong and um, to a Japanese mother and an English father. Uh, he was he was a airline pilot like yourself, and uh, she was a, a stewardess. And um, I might even be a mile high baby. I don't even know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, so a very very global upbringing because they were we were we were an expat family and sort of travelling from a very very early age. And um, yes, yeah, so I grew up in Hong Kong until I was ten, and then moved to the to the, to the UK. Um, never felt very British. Um, so as soon as I hit 18, I started traveling around the world and, um, kind of like, I guess I had this sort of little traveler explorer rebel thing going on. And I just wanted to, to, to go and seek out my own answers and adventures and, and fly the roost, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, my childhood was dominated by a, a very religious upbringing. My mother's like a, my mother is a Jehovah's witness. So quite a lot of rigid dogmatic brainwashing. I hope she doesn't listen to this. That will offend her, that use of that word. But uh, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. Um, so that was, a, that was a very strict kind of like, uh, this is how you should live. This is how you should be. Um, this is good and that's bad and all that kind of stuff, which I guess is uh, just getting back to your original question about pivotal childhood moments or things that have made you the man I am today, made me the man I am today. That's very much, I guess, shaped my my quest for my own truth and searching for my own answers and exploring under every nook and cranny, um, whether it's science, philosophy, anthropology, just, yeah, I'm a very curious observer of life. And I guess that's in, in response to being raised a very kind of narrow um, definition of where I should be looking for the answers, i.e. the Bible. Um, so, so, yeah. So has there been a process of do you embrace any of that brainwashing or has it been a process of undoing a lot of that stuff? Oh, totally undoing, man. Like, um, I, I left that religion formally when I was like 14, 15 years old, which was a huge struggle because they fight tooth and nail to keep you in. Yeah. And then I began a process of, of deconstructing all of the programming that I had been, uh, I guess, like programmed with. Um, and I kind of like see my whole life in fact, the rest of until until the day I die, until this incarnation is no more, I see my life as a process of deconditioning myself from all of the things that we are conditioned by. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's the that kind of urge to connect with what is the unconditioned, i.e., the the innate, intuitive part of me. Um, I guess that is really a kind of like a strong theme in my life. So what are some of the examples like from the Jehovah's religion? Like what are some of the stronger ones that you really struggled with like as you left that religion to decondition from? They kind of like claim a monopoly on the truth, which really yeah. irks me from a young age in that they even call their religion the truth. They're like we're in the truth and, and, and the opposite of being in the truth is, is being worldly, so, so, which is ironic because I kind of like... like it's not being in a lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like being worldly, but they see being worldly as like the worst thing ever. Right. Like, oh, that person over there, he's, 
he's uh he's been drinking in the pub he's so worldly um <laughs> and i'm like oh i'm really well traveled i consider myself a citizen of the world i feel pretty worldly yeah, um, but yeah that kind of monopoly truth. on the truth yeah it kind of drives me nuts and then there's the whole kind of intolerances you know like kind of like very archaic um, intolerances towards like, homosexuality for example um and then these sort this sort of like um let's choose what sections of the bible we're going to take literally and let's choose what sections we're not going to take literally because really it's impractical to stone our neighbor who like steals our goat or whatever but we'll stick we'll stick hold of the passage that says we won't have blood transfusions and we won't do birthdays and christmases and we won't be friends of homosexuals and things like that i just found it all very arbitrary and kind of artificial the way they kind of picked and choose um stuff that apparently this dude 2000 years ago might or might not have said wow so <laughs> there you go <laughs> um, yeah. take that jesus uh so <laughs> what uh what was the resistance was there a period of struggle with your mum did she kind of did she grapple with you leaving the religion how did that play out oh yeah massively man it's sort of like um for my mother like with with maturity like, like at the actual time it was like like complete adolescent rebellion just wanting to be free and wanting to have nothing to do with this thing which was this this sort of religion that was very restrictive and also you know my mother was kind of like you know how japanese people can get very fanatical about stuff well i've got a fair idea yeah <laughs> well <laughs> imagine a, a fanatical lady from a very fanatical race being in a very fanatical religion yeah, that's um a great image. and that was yeah and that was the, the sort of thing that i was that i was pushing against so yeah it was kind of like this highly emotionally charged kicking and screaming um type of thing from my perspective i just wanted to be out uh, i just wanted to do you know have this what i viewed as normal life and play rugby with my mates and go out and just just not be within that religion and for her with more emotional maturity and stuff i can actually perceive that for her me leaving the religion is kind of the equivalent of me choosing death over life because of like her beliefs actually are so strong that she actually thinks that people within her religion are going to like uh there's going to be this thing called armageddon and then they're going to be resurrected and they're going to live happily ever after like you know on this on this paradise earth and then everyone else is going to perish and so for her she's just basically got these motherly instincts to protect her young and and help them survive so you know of course it was like going to always be super 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 emotionally charged so yeah just that gives you a little bit of an idea yeah it sounds like you've done a lot of work like have a lot of maturity around that understanding it oh it's bloody hard mate it's uh yeah you've got to right like there was lots of i guess my my 20s and i'm 37 now and my relationship with my mother is still not epic uh, because there's, there's simply we're simply so far apart there's this gigantic chasm in between yeah. us um you know i i veered heavily towards the side of rationality and reason and logic and open-mindedness and she veers completely down the other end of the spectrum which is closed-mindedness and dogma um so there really isn't that much to talk about um <laughs> so but on the other hand there's this i realized in my 20s this you know theme you know part of my transformation as a human has been around the themes of 
self-acceptance and self-forgiveness. And you can't actually have full self-acceptance and self-forgiveness unless you have forgiven and accepted all the other people in your life. That that's kind of a truth that that experience. You know that that kind of like accepting and forgiving of someone in your life who's been very 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 challenging and difficult has been a necessary part of evolution. It's just like I think the Buddha said that like if you hold on to anger, you you end up burning your hand. Or he probably said it more wisely than that. <laughs> but I mean, I was just you know holding on to to resentment against my mother was never ever going to be a never ever going to lead to to joy and happiness and compassion for me. So um, yeah, I went through a process of of doing the work necessary to, to yeah, per- perceive through the lens of empathy and compassion and kind of like put myself in her shoes and, and try and feel what, what it would feel like for her. That's, that's definitely been one of my practices to deal with, with that relationship. Is there any way that it's been a blessing? Oh, hugely, man. Like imagine, <laughs> imagine if you from the age of five years old, so five to 15 years old, like every Saturday, every Sunday, you put your little like uniform on and you carry your your Bible literature and you go around knocking on doors, and you're just going up to complete strangers and you're pitching a religion to people who 99.999% of the time are really uninterested. Like think about the resilience and the tenacity yeah. and, <laughs> and like the bounce back ability that you develop from that. I think that <laughs> when I think about my early, the career that I that I leapt into when I was 25 years old um, was was headhunting, which is kind of like a, a consultative form of sales. Um, you know, a lot of like cold calling and a lot of talking to clients and pretending you know about what what you don't really know that much about. <laughs> um, and you really have to have a thick skin if you're going to survive in that game. And and I I was actually like very successful in that industry. Um, and, and, and I put that down to a large part in having the sort of confidence um, and street smarts, I guess, to to just talk to people all day long. Yeah, and that's cool. So did it feel very natural to you, like going into that yeah. role? Is it like this is uh, familiar for me? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's very different. Well, um, this, but but just just this idea of, of dealing with setbacks, you know, resilience. Yeah, like thick skinness, I guess. Like I've noticed in my life that. You know, some people really, really, really struggle with with, with knockbacks, and um, you know, it, it can take a long time to bounce back from something like that. But I don't really have that thing, um, <laughs> and, I, and I guess that's a, yeah, that's a huge that, that's gift, a, a childhood thing. Yeah. Also, I'm just fascinated by how you know some of our greatest struggles can be our greatest gifts. You know, and like you don't mm. really realize it at the time, or you're in it, it feels horrible. But you know, sometimes when you look back, you're like, man. You just, I just noticed for me, I, I don't take the time to see what the gifts were and things a lot of the time. But when I do, just look at it through a different lens. It's, you know, you can see all these different gifts. Yeah, man. Just and just on that theme, like, I'm I'm grateful for it all. Like, I'm grateful for for everything. Like, I I can I understand that my mum was from her place from from her level of consciousness was acting to the best of her ability to protect and provide for her offspring. And she, she did her best. And I'm super grateful for that. Um, I'm super grateful for all of those experiences that, um, 
allowed me to develop my mind because I think like when you're five, six, seven years old and you're learning Bible scriptures off by heart around the dinner table um, and you're, you know, we also had to like stand on stage and deliver these five minute talks about, you know, about religious stuff. And if you you think about like the the skills that that gives you, memorization, public speaking, um, all that kind of like confidence type stuff. um, I think there's a, I think it's actually when I think about it, it's played a huge role in my development. Yeah, so interesting. And what about your dad? Where's your dad and all of this? Are you guys close or does he have a big influence on you growing up? Yeah, so my dad was always like the the pillar of normality. And when you contrast that against where my mum was, it was like my my dad was like fun, uh, normality, like uh, we'd, you know, he would like, we'd look forward to him coming home from his trips. He was always like the kind of like we'd escaped to sort of be with him. Um, my parents split up when I was 10. So I, I lived with my mother through my teenage years, but and my, and we'd, me and my brother would see, see my father on the weekends. And uh, yeah, close to my dad, for sure. I mean, he's, he's, um, yeah, he's an awesome, awesome guy. They're both awesome in their own ways. But yeah, my mom and dad are completely, completely different characters. And my dad is like completely unreligious. Um, yeah, it's kind of like ex-military man. Yeah, really kind and generous and loving. And um, yeah, I got a got a lot of got a lot of love and respect for him. Yeah, that's cool. D- does he still fly? Just selfish question. Does he what? Does he still fly? <laughs> no, no, no. Like interestingly enough, like so he flew for Cathay, and then when his uh, career, they, they had a, I think it was a fifty-five age retirement he got another he, he moved to virgin when they were just starting up right and he got another five years in his career and so he finished up with virgin at the age of 60 and then um he never he never had the urge to to fly after that N- not really sure why so you you get to 18 you start traveling the world is there what's the definitive moments around that period the first thing i did when i was 18 i'd, I'd been i'd been like skiing before in, in in france on like a on like a trip and i was like absolutely in, enthralled by by mountains and by just the the different vibe that, that I got there so as soon as I was as soon as I finished school like after my last exam I just went straight into work to just save up money and, and as soon as the winter came around I, I just went solo um, <laughs> to to a French ski resort with absolutely no French no idea no contacts just to, like I printed off 50 50 CVs resumes and uh, and I remember I had like 250 pounds in the in my bank account, and um, and I just went and and quickly realised that everyone there was a system and everyone had already applied and filled jobs in like <laughs> September time, <laughs> and I wasn't aware of that. So I got there and there were no jobs going, and and uh, so I was just tramping through town, um, just just get, trying to give my my CV away and. I got to like the last last day where I was gonna well I was basically gonna have to run out I was gonna run out of money I was gonna have to call my dad and say hey will you will you buy me a bus ticket back back to the UK <laughs> and um, yeah I went to this nightclub and they were looking for for a driver who could help them um, take basically it was a nightclub so when people were really drunk at three or four in the morning um, they needed to drive the minibus to take these people back to their chalets. And and I stuck my hand up and I was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I'd love that job. Um, and then the guy said, all right, meet me at the uh, meet me at the car park of the supermarket tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. And I was like, yeah, done. Um, the only problem was I had no idea how to drive a vehicle. Um, Small I'd detail. Never, 
yeah, small details. So, so I rock up and I'm, and basically it becomes very evident. I nearly drive the guy off a cliff. It's like a, it's like <laughs> this clutch. It's like this manual, like old school diesel van. And I'm just like, I started. I'd watched my mates drive, so I so I knew like what a clutch was, and I was just like grinding the gears, start, and bun, yeah. bunny hopping forward, and it was just the guy was just like, stop, stop, stop. It's like there's no way you're getting that job. But I don't know. I guess he. I guess there was something. You know, there was something there because he said, all right, come back later. We'll see if we can get you a job collecting glasses. Um, and I was like, sweet, foot in the door. So I went back later on and uh, they were like, all right, you can be a glass collector and um, you can be like backup security. Um, but there's one thing in France, the, the bouncers for these nightclubs use like, they, they have like pepper spray. That's part of their security like protocol. They're allowed to like spray people with, with pepper spray. And they're like, all right. Um, one of the rules is that you've got to like, you got to like take this in the face um, if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna like take this job. And I was just like, for sure, man. And just just go ahead, spray me. So I ended up getting a job in there. And I think the less the lesson, like when I look back on that, I'm like, that that whole experience was so transformative for me because like for a start, I was just on my own for the first time ever, and I was just kind of like making shit happen and making it up as I go along. And I guess just learning the art of like smart street smart kind of like i know that there was a big lie involved there and there was potentially a life-threatening lie to other people who are going to be in my my minibus but i mean that kind of like that kind of like thing about i guess making your own opportunities just just you know doing what you've got to do sometimes <laughs> that was kind of a big lesson for me but it seems like that, that's result. quite intrinsic in you yeah maybe yeah i think i am very opportunistic um yeah, I think that's definitely very intrinsic in me. Is that opportunism? Um, yeah. So after the, after that time in France, I was sort of like completely um, bitten by the adventure bug, and like the next few years of my life were kind of moulded around surfing and snowboarding. Um, so I did my I did university, which was fantastic. I did a I did a couple of years living in America as part of that university degree. Um, then after that, I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to join the, the corporate world. All my mates were joining like banks and law firms and accountancy firms and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and that felt like a terrible idea to me. Um, so I went and became an English teacher in Japan instead. So I spent my 23rd and 24th year of, of life, uh, yeah, in Japan, like mastering the art of karaoke and sushi eating and, and, uh, yeah, Very important just, arts. Very important arts, mate. I'm sure you've you've tasted a few of them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> did you um, did you speak Japanese? Did your mum speak Japanese with you? No. So she was like really on a quest to to learn English. We we spoke English at home. Um, she did. She tried a little bit of the bilingual thing with my older brother, um, but then but by the time I came around, it was just pure English. So I didn't know any Japanese when I went to Japan. Um, and part of the reason why I went there was 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 to learn enough so that I could go visit my mum's family, you know, my uncle, my aunties, my cousins, and and go and hang out with them and connect with them. And yeah, that was that was a very rewarding part of my adventure in Japan. Yeah, it's an interesting part um, having a whole family, well, one whole side of your family that doesn't speak the language that you speak. It must have been an interesting piece in itself. Yeah, man, it's it was it's kind of confrontational you know like you know my japanese wasn't 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 that great and you know they call it um yeah inaka in in, in japanese like countryside like these these like fully rural 
um, people. So it was, it was really eye-opening. You know, you know, you know this because you live in Japan. But um, what we see of Japan from the outside world is this high-tech, fast-paced, you know, modern state. But but that's Tokyo and Osaka and a couple of other cities. Um, the rest of Japan is like super low-tech and uh, really agricultural and kind of like technologically like really really behind. Uh, would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think like Japan in itself is just a, a, a place of paradox. The whole yeah. thing is just full of paradox. Yeah. So these, so, so my my cousins who are like, I guess like similar generation to me, like like not even not even email addresses or or like you know just literally just not connected in 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 that way that we take so for granted these days. Mm. Um, no no mobile phones. Um, also it was kind of like going back in time. Um, but it was, yeah, it was cool to, to, to do my best to communicate with them and, and, you know, understand a bit more of my, of my roots. I, I, I definitely got a, more of an insight into, into my mother's childhood and, you know, she was pretty much like, she, she, she left Japan when she was 19, 20 years old, which is way more rebellious than, than, and way more like out there than, than me because yeah. if you're if you're raised in a Japanese village in the 50s and 60s and there's fat patties all around you um, the idea of getting out of that teaching yourself English joining Cathay Pacific becoming a, 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 an air stewardess in the most exotic time to, to be flying um, is risque. kind of like out there yeah. <laughs> yeah isn't it so yeah I really I really got an appreciation for that which is pretty awesome yeah, explains a bit of where your um, adventure adventure comes from. It's in your genes. Yeah, I guess so. I never really like that's a recent that's a recent appreciation. Like feeling that you know, actually, because my mum is so not adventurous now. Like mm. you know, but but there was a time in her life where she where she where she like really really must have been hugely courageous. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Does my my mum is uh, was born in Montreal in Canada. And I kind of went through the similar sort of process and went back in time and realized that her father was born in New Zealand, my grandfather, and then his father was born in Ireland. And so there's been like this, you know, and then me kind of going to Tokyo. So there's been this sort of four or five generations of leaving the country you were born in, which mm. I just find that so interesting, you know, how you can have whole yeah. families in countries like Japan or even England that have never left the country and go to the same pub, you know, generation after generation. And then I can look at my family and see that generation after generation, everybody's left and gone exploring the world. It's like there's got to be something to it, you know? That is fascinating, yeah. And so so, you, so where do you go from there? You kind of lead from Japan. Do you... Yeah, so, so basically like, this time in Japan was kind of like, you know, it was awesome. I was, I was kind of just extending university, but getting paid, but, you know, doing more karaoke and surfing and eating awesome food. But it was always, like, destined to end because I, I knew that my might lie in Japan for the long term. And by the time I – I remember, like, having this very palpable feeling of, like, missing out or feeling behind because by this stage all my mates from, from school and from uni were kind of, like, two years into some sort of career. And I remember having this very, very, very strong sense that – there was this kind of like version of success that I was really not aligning with. 
And um, yeah, I, I remember like feeling like, oh shit, I'm playing catch up here. Like I'm behind. All these people are like further ahead, and they're thinking, you know, that they'll be like buying houses and climbing up the ladder. And and for some reason, even though you know my entire teenage years and early twenties, all I'd want to do was adventure and travel. I, I guess this was kind of like this, this kind of like you, you know, you have that this very strong cultural message of, oh, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to just settle down? <laughs> and 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 I very and I very much felt that vibe um, coming through to me. And it was like, oh, Jira, maybe you do need to grow up. Maybe you do need to settle down and get savings and think about, you know, in, whatever investments and security and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, you know, I I decided that that was something I needed to give real attention to. And so I moved back to London and um, worked at a couple of jobs like um, first of all selling surfing holidays, snowboarding holidays because I thought it aligned with my interests for surfing and snowboarding. But uh, then I got kind of like not not poached, but I got kind of like uh, well I met this dude at a barbecue who owned a recruitment company, a headhunting company, and we ended up chatting and. He asked me how much money I earned, and I thought he was very upfront and rude. Um, but he kept on pestering me, and I told him, and he laughed at me, and I thought he was a dick. And then he said, oh, come for an interview because there's people like you who are earning 10 times as much money as you're earning. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, so anyway, I ended up going to the interview. They ended up like um, like dragging me over the coals, and going, I went through this torturous interview process where they made me feel horrendous and they belittled me and mocked me. But apparently, it was all part of some elaborate ruse to see how tough I was. Um, and it was a ruse that I was indoctrinated with and I inflicted upon other people in coming years. Um, but anyway, I ended up getting a job as a headhunter in this company in London. This was, this was like, this is my like mini Wolf of Wall Street, like segment of my life where like i went from like basically impoverished surfer to you know earning like hundreds of thousands of dollars like very 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 quickly um because a the market was absolutely booming this is like you know this is 2000 and b i was working in a very on a very hot area i was doing like like equity derivatives in the finance sector in the asian market c i was trained by some exceptional humans um, and D, I guess I had that Jehovah's Witness upbringing. I was just very, very good at hitting. It all the came together. <laughs> yeah, it was like <laughs> the perfect, perfect storm. storm to absolutely smash it as a as a headhunter. <laughs> so, like after after um, the first year, I was like literally the leading like salesman in a company of like 400, 500 people around the world. Um, like the poster boy, top of the charts, um, like earning the most money could choose whatever I wanted, was was sent to Hong Kong in year two to set up the office in Hong Kong. Oh, full um, circle moment. Yeah, 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 full, exactly, man. So I went back to Hong Kong, set up this office, um, did even better in year two than I did in year one. Um, and if you can imagine, this was, a, this was like, you know, that sort of job, it's like full carnage like you're, you're working hard you're partying hard you're going out with clients there's money just flying around everywhere you've basically got 25 year olds with more money they can spend um and it's just full carnage party mode and i was just getting like ridiculously unhealthy and imbalanced and um yeah this this interesting process started to happen where i began to feel 
um, increasingly insecure and afraid. And um, I, I began that like the more money I had, the more afraid I became of losing it. And, you know, I became very, very one dimensional in the way I was thinking. It was all, oh, I don't have enough. I've got to have more. I've got to have more. I was basically just caught in this cycle of accumulation and like career driven frenzy and like f completely fueled by all if you can imagine like the adulation and kudos and ego validation that was just heaped upon me because i was this guy who was doing really 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 well that it must have been enjoyable well. for you doing something that you're really good at oh man there's yeah i mean it's there was an element of 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 joy to it all because we were flying high you know that we were we were doing massive deals you know we were, we were closing I remember this this one deal I closed like earned the, the the company I was working for like four hundred thousand pounds, which was like a million, one point two million dollars at the time, um, and I was the person who orchestrated that deal, and I got paid like two hundred fifty thousand dollars just just for closing that particular deal, and you know of course you're twenty six years old and you're earning a lot of money, and you know everyone's patting you on the back, and you've got this career ahead of you, which just you know, it looks amazing. And that's one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, you've got physical unhealthiness, like just smashing beers and smashing Coke and just doing all of that sort of stuff uh, Monday till Sunday. Um, you've got emotional kind of degradation because you're, you're, you're just like, you're just like riding this wave of like, extrinsic validation you know what i mean it's like it's not there, there was nothing there was no inner work being done it was it, it was it, it, it was, was all, all like how do we it was all ego level stuff yeah 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 and i was and, and i was surrounded by bankers like financiers like people who were modeling their entire life on wealth accumulation and uh I guess this was a this was a time in my life where i look back as as like being the most spiritually barren years of my life um, I really completely forgot about all things meditation and all things self-inquiry. And I really just focused, you know, before this time, I, I was reading like Osho and I was reading Eckhart Tolle and I was reading about Buddhism and, you know, I was reading about the mind and I was really interested in just like wisdom traditions. But during this time of my life, it was all about accumulation. I was reading about, you know, property investing and stock investing and I was you know I think I think what you read reveals a lot about where your where your mind is at at that time um so that was that period of my life and it kind of like after two years of doing that I kind of decided to to, to quit I left I left on the on a high note I guess like um on a high note in terms of like my career was flying high um but I remember I was sitting in my kind of lit apartment long and you know every, everything was rosy from the outside. But I remember I, I used to watch I used to watch a lot of National Ge Geographic Channel on, on TV just to sort of zone out from from that work mode. Um, and I was just you know when you watch people surfing around the world and climbing mountains and trekking through Mongolia and things like that, that really ignited this sense that I was actually not living my dream. <laughs> I was living a version of success that was kind of handed to me by my culture, but it definitely wasn't mine. And 
you know, this, this version of success says, hey, there's a carrot dangle in front of you, and it's, um, it's basically the carrot con- consisting of financial wealth and security and the ego validation of having a really successful career. Um, and I caught that carrot, man. I was like chewing on it. I was munching away at it, um, but it was completely unnourishing. And I guess that was the realization I had. So I quit that. I quit that life. Um, was there a moment there? To... There's like a, when I, in all the jobs I've had, there's been a moment where I've looked at people that are ten, twenty, thirty years ahead of me in the same company, and kind of gone, "Is there anyone here that you know projecting this is what I'm going to be? This is what my life's going to look like. Is there anyone here that I want to be like?" Was there a moment like that where you like looked around and kind of thought, man, I can see the path that this leads to? I think it was more introspective than that. Like it was, there was a, there was a moment where I was walking from one meeting to another, you know, and you do this, you do this kind of like corporate shuffle where you walk really fast because you, you're never, you know, you're always so busy. Always have important. paper in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got like this little notepad under your arm and you're just like, <laughs> And I, and I remember stopping at a traffic light in Hong Kong next to the, the HSBC bank there. And uh, um, I remember like catching like a, a reflection of myself against the glass. And I sort of like did this double take. And there I was like, you know, expensive suits, shiny shoes, top, but, top button buttoned up, like hair all smart, clean shaven, looking like kind of like stern and important and and I kind of like, I guess like caught a glimpse of something in my eyes um, that was not representative of this shell, this uniform, this kind of like outer exterior thing that, 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 that you know, I could see in the reflection. And I kind of realized, I had this kind of like instant moment that I was actually just wearing a, a shell. Like, but there was this thing inside me that was completely different. Like there was this authentic there was authentic Jiro, and then there was this thing, this like caricature, and that was a very, very, very transformative. Or that was like a seed that 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 lay within me, and you know, I'd I'd go back to my apartment and have these sleepless nights where I was like, just like, I was, I was like, I knew that I was like selling out on my dreams. I, like I just wanted to explore the world. I wanted to explore the mind. I wanted to like do all these things but here i was like basically a a rat in the rat race um keeping myself stuck in it through fears of not having enough money or not being enough um and these these kind of like fears kept me awake at night and i had this realization that i was selling out on on my dreams um and living someone else's life and like yeah they festered they festered away and until i reached a point of desperation slash bravery (laughs) <laughs> where you're like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it, and so I quit and I did what you're about to do, and um, I moved to Bali for some, for some R and R, and yeah, I, I actually spent the next one and a half years immersing myself in, I guess you'd call it spiritual practice. Like I was um, doing a lot of embodiment. I was doing a lot of yoga and qigong. I was meditating every day. Um, I was feeding my mind with nourishing wisdom um i was washing myself clean from the inauthenticity that i had been soaking in um and i was allowing something innate to emerge 
during those two years traveling around the world. Um, and that, I guess, is like the real foundation for, for where I am now um, because the life that I live now, eight years after, eight, nine years after that moment of leaving Hong Kong is the full manifestation of that path I put myself on towards living authentically, um, living a life of intentional design, learning what is beneath all the conditioning and all the fears and plunging into life with this whole new energy of abundance and trust and surrender. And yeah, I guess that's been awesome because, because here I am today living it. Mm. And could you see, like, if you go back to that moment before you left, is there a way that you could be or feel how you're feeling now and still be in that corporate environment? Or are they kind of, do you yeah. feel like they're at odds with each other completely? I think that's a very astute question. And, and it's something that I've, that I've given much thought to because I think it's really like you're absolutely bang on. Like, like the first thing you said is, is what I feel is accurate. Of course there is a way to be completely congruent and authentic and still be working in the corporate world. Like, of course there is, there are many human beings around the world who are doing this and I take my hat off to them. For me, where I was at, at with my particular level of consciousness at the time, it was at odds. It could not happen. But could I now go back to that world and do that job and still retain my integrity? I, I believe I could. I think my point is that I've, it's like it's the corporate world is not the enemy. Like working for someone else is not the enemy. Like, of course not. Like, it's the point I'm trying to make is that it's, are, are you being true to yourself? Like, can you, do you, can you look yourself in the eye and say, yes, this is. I am acting, I'm, I'm living my full life. I think if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I am living through love, not fear. I am, my life path is not one dominated by fears and anxieties and insecurities. And yet I'm still choosing to do whatever I'm doing. Then wonderful. You are living life how I believe life can be lived. Hmm. That's awesome. I noticed in myself that I can kind of dress up living from fear to look like I'm coming from <laughs> A loving place does that make sense like i can um i can kind of yeah make it look like oh you know i've got this great life and i'm doing this and i'm living the life i love but really it's the fear is um i don't want to fully commit and mm. lose everything so i'm kind mm. of i'm half and i got one foot in each camp which is where i've been the last few years um, oh dude yeah i think that the, the notion that you're talking about right there is like called selling to yourself and and I think that like a, a large percentage of the world sells to themselves that this is good enough, that, that what they're doing is good enough, um, partly just as a survival mechanism, you know, like um, to, to, just to get through. I, I think that the change, like change only, change begins with awareness. Like a, a, awareness is kind of like everything. Like when you become aware of something new, then you can begin to make a change from that. Like, and this kind of idea of avoiding truth. We touched on this before when we were talking about like, this idea of avoiding just being, just being still because of this fear of what you might see. Well, I think that a lot of people are like plunging into their careers, plunging headfirst into, into these jobs and telling themselves that they really do stand for being a commercial analyst for you know this giant multinational company and they really do love like whatever it is that they're doing um as a kind of way of 
putting this mask on, which allows them to avoid kind of confronting truths of who they are and what they are and, and all the sort of unknowns that come with that. Uh, I don't even think people are that <laughs> weird, generally. It's more like, this is good enough. Like, this is close enough. I'm not fully self-expressed and I'm not fully following my dreams and I don't, I don't feel great all the time. But yeah. up there, this is a nice balance between discomfort and comfort, security and doing something that I kind of enjoy and providing for me and my family and not getting yeah. too bored. <laughs> it's more yeah. like a, a game of balance than a game of like, okay, how can I live a life that I'm fully coming from this place where I'm fully just doing what I love, I'm giving my gifts, um, I can just be, I don't have to do anything. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, man. I think like once you tick off, like I think what Maslow's hierarchy of needs and various other psychological models have shown us is that you can, there's a few things that we really have to tick off, like physical survival and getting emotional survival, getting, feeling hugs and validation and love and support. Um, and then, you know, we're kind of like winning. We're, we're surviving, like if, if that's what you call winning. But then there's this next level, which I guess only becomes one can only become conscious of this next level when one has gone there, I guess. But it's this moving beyond survival to, to I guess, what you might call thriving. Or I guess it's where you start question, asking yourselves questions. And I, th I think that I think that a lot of humans go through this, you know, around the ages of somewhere around, you know, around the age of 30. Like if you like I was actually reading this book, which I can't remember what it's called, but it talked about how, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, a lot of these other sort of mystical people throughout the ages, but also like non-mystical people like Isaac Newton, Einstein, a lot of these people like went through significant shifts in consciousness around the age of 30. And at that age, started asking themselves different questions and started perceiving themselves through a different lens and asking themselves, I, I guess it's like we, we know in our, we, we feel immortal. In our 20s, we're just like exploring life. And in our 30s, like, Things like uh, our own mortality and life purpose and, and things like that start to become a lot more front and center in our lives. I think any sentient, intelligent, conscious being who reflects on questions like, you know, what is my actual purpose in life? What is the actual meaning that we're here? What the hell is this all about? You're either going to come to a point where you've got to make significant life changes or you've got to kind of like just put your blinkers on and ignore those questions and just carry on as you were before wearing a mask. I feel like the, the, to go to the first option, there's always, it feels like there's always a leap of faith. At some point, there's, you have to jump into the unknown. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, this is like it's never an easy path where it's like, oh, okay, well, you're in this life where you're not that aligned with your true purpose. And then, but if you just come over here, there's a three part, you know, three point process to get you to follow your purpose. And it's, um, it's profitable oh, and it's easy and you're going to feel great. It doesn't look like that in reality. One of our culture's most horrendous myths is this idea of you will, you must find your purpose. Um, and also this idea of like... It's hiding under a rock somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hiding in an orphanage. <laughs> it's, it's like a scavenger Kathmandu. hunt when you're a kid. <laughs> you <just gotta laughs> yeah, find yeah, it. yeah, right. Yeah. You've got to find it. You've got to go out there and find it outside of yourself. And, and what my life experience has actually told me is that it's actually in me, except it's hidden beneath my fears. Mm. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. 
So this, this idea of like finding your purpose sets people off on this external quest where it's like, I'm going to find my guru who's going to help me find my purpose. I'm, I just need to read the next self-help book. I just need to go to the next Tony Robbins conference. I just got to take a six month sabbatical so I can just ask myself some real questions, give myself space. And it's like, that might actually help in some way, but it's not it. The it is actually doing the really, really hard and scary thing. And what's coming to my mind is this, is this David Attenborough like, nature documentary where there's this really confronting and sort of like gut-wrenching little clip of this fluffy little bird like perched in this nest on this 2,000-foot cliff. And it tries to take its first flight out of the nest and it just completely fails and it ends falling just like a dead weight, just falling and smacking rocks and cliff and bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. And it feels like it's going on forever. And you're just wincing, like, as you're watching this. It's just like, oh, poor bird. It's completely dead, 100% dead. And then it gets to the bottom of the cliff and it just bounces off the ground. And then, and then it sort of, like, shakes itself down and um, starts flapping its wings and manages to take its first flight. And you're like, holy shit. Like, this is the way nature works. We actually have to like experience pain and suffering and we actually have to challenge ourselves for us to actually experience that thing called purpose and growth. And this is something that I 100% believe in. Like the, the, the uh, Joseph Campbell, who's like a mythologist, anthropologist, very beautiful writer, um, said that the, the cave we fear to enter holds we seek. I think this is so true. So for any, anybody out there who's, you know, feeling that, that lacking of purpose and meaning, I, I really do feel that using our fears, like the things that we're actually terrified of as, as actual like tangible signposts as the cave to, to go into. What were some examples for you? Oh man, good question. I'll, I'll give you some, some good examples. Like, like my starting my entrepre- entrepreneurial journey was like a massive cave for, for me to enter. So basically when I, 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 I had this two-year period of wisdom seeking and, and sort of like inner growth and transformation and decided to move to Australia and I was like, okay, um, I want to live here, uh, but it's not that easy. You have to like get a visa. So it was like, gosh, the only way for me to get a visa is like for me to go back into the rat race and join a, and join a corp company that's going to sponsor me. So I did that and that was an interesting couple of years. And then... I like always knew that I wanted to start my own business and um, leaving like the security of a well-paid job to make the plunge into entrepreneurship was it was a huge cave that I that I feared to enter um, and it, it's a big one for, for, for everyone um, who begins that journey you know to go from certainty to uncertainty um, to go from structure to complete unstructure and chaos and all of that stuff and to basically just try and survive and it required a, a whole bunch of financial another another cave that i entered during that same time as me starting my first business was breaking up a relationship to um, a person i'd been with for five years and i was actually engaged to um, and we were set to get married and that's tough you know looking back in hindsight the relationship was completely toxic you know we, we were both living in fear we were both in a relationship because of the fear of not being in a relationship yeah and so I, I started up this business she was actually like a business partner at the time and so we broke up the business struggled 
there was no money coming in. There was only money going out, and I was going through a breakup. Um, and it was very, 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 very painful. And but the treasure that I got from that was unbelievably potent. I look back at the the, the six months that followed that breakup as kind of like the most powerful manure that was cast upon the field of my life in the terms <laughs> that it was stinky. It was just manure. But yet the fertility of that period of my life was profound. Well, actually, let's talk about the pain. So the pain of this would, breakup. I wanted to touch on that part. Like it's exactly what I was talking about before that where you're yeah. in a relationship, you can kind of make to look like a loving thing, but actually yeah. the driving force is a fear of being alone. Oh, fully. That was completely it. Fear of fear of being alone and also like that strange kind of like fear of hurting the other person, even though you are hurting the person. That's a really big one, actually. I, I hear that one yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's just kind of like... As if like being the, in a kind of fearful, <laughs> loveless relationship is not hurting them. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that paradoxical? Yeah. I, I, I think it's just kind of like co-joined dynamic that happens in so many relationships it's kind of like two individuals actually become one propping themselves up like intertwined in so many aspects and it's like you know you know you get these co-joined twins and it's like the parents are faced with the choice uh, and the doctor's like oh if we separate them they'll die so it kind of becomes like that it's like oh shit if this if this relationship ends will she die will she Will she kill herself? Like these, these are actual thoughts that I think go through a lot of people's minds. It's kind know? of a like, weird form of narcissism. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, how did totally, this person I, live without me? I know. I'm so important that <laughs> how could they possibly live without me? <laughs> totally, man. Yeah, I, I, I remember feeling that. You know, um, but also just feeling like just comp- hopelessly sad at because you. It's it's the, the ending of a relationship is kind is, is a grieving process because you're actually grieving the death of a fantasized future. So you fantasize, as a couple, you fantasize about this future, you fantasize about these unborn children and what they're gonna look like, what features they're gonna have of me and her and what traits and what are we gonna name them and you fantasize about you know, growing old together and these people and these kids growing up and you having grandkids and all these sorts of things you fantasize about, which is kind of natural and unavoidable to an extent, maybe, I don't know. But, but then, when the relationship ends, that dies. And that is incredibly painful. It, it's almost like this, it's almost like a kind of like future you dies or, or what you thought was future you dies. So a part, a part of you definitely dies. And for me, it felt like this grieving process. And I remember just kind of curling up in, in bed, being unable to leave the house and just like racking my body with uncontrollable tears and weeping for for weeks and then you know at the same time I was going through this very very valuable process of introspection and 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 almost like like picking over the carcass of the relationship and going through this process of like okay what how did I contribute to that what what is it about me what were my actions beliefs thoughts behaviors what what did I do how was I responsible for what manifested? And I remember being very, very conscious and deliberate about this process. I know that and I remember of like, like, I'd never want this to happen again. I never want to go through this pain again. Like, how can I, what, what work can I do to heal and make sure that I don't yeah, was, make this mistake? It was, it was that, but it was also like this refusal to let this opportunity pass like, or, and this refusal to just 
take the easy route out, which is just blame blame my ex. And it was kind of like, I, I guess what I'm getting, it was like this acceptance, this, this kind of like knowing that there were some things about me that I didn't, that would, that, that we're not, I, I didn't want to have in me, like that there were some traits that I really, that, that did not align with my vision of, of, of who I wanted to be. And so it was like a really fertile period of self-inquiry and, and change. And um, yeah, I think it was, you know, very transformative in hindsight. And you know, it kind of like set the platform for me to kind of like recreate myself. And once again, as, as, as habit dictates, I took myself off to Bali and um, <laughs> had, had a few weeks of, um, you know, just being by myself, really. And I, and I, learned, how, I learned how to free dive. Um, I went on a meditation retreat um, I, and I experienced one of the most, one of the, you know, you have these periods in your life, Nathan, where, where, where there's just an increased amount of synchronicity and serendipity hmm. and and i had one of those one of those beautiful experiences of my life for, for, for a period of weeks where where I, I would just wake up and with no agenda and just go go walking and find a cafe to have breakfast and then something about the way that i was would attract someone to come and have a chat with me which would open up the doorways for me to go on some sort of adventure where i would meet someone else or have some sort of awakening and it was just like one thing flowing into another thing flowing. And I was really having a very profound realization about, about energetic state, you know, about the, the state that the state in which we are in, in each and every present moment dictates everything in life. It dictates like what we attract into our, into our life. It, it attracts what people feel from us. Um, and, 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 and I guess this is like kind of this, this period of my life merging with that corporate world kind of like desire to just get out and create, create my own future um, kind of blended into this, the next business that I set up, was, which was Flow State, which is the, the business that I, um, I run now. And then um, the Flow State, I guess it's called the Flow State Collective. And flow state, for anybody that isn't aware, is, is, a, is a state of consciousness in which we are fully immersed in what we are doing. It's a thoughtless state, an egoless state, a timeless state, uh, this blissful state of harmony with the rhythms of life. And uh, everybody out there has, has, has felt this state definitely as, as children. And, and if you're a surfer or a skier or, or a singer or a dancer, you know, really immerse yourself in, in any sort of pursuit that, that, you, that you love and you understand well, then you've definitely experienced this thing called flow. And um, I began to immerse myself in psychology and neuroscience of flow. And I blended it into what I, would, what I had learned when it came to meditation and spiritual practice. And that kind of intersection became this, this area in which I began to design my life around. You know, the, the possibility of living my entire life in that state of synchronicity and serendipity where the right, you meet the right people at the right time became like this very tangible, realistic possibility. And so that's kind of like what I decided to dedicate my life towards. 
And did you, um, do, did you trust that that was, was that you felt like that was some a state that you could recreate, that you could get yourself into, put yourself into periods where that synchronicity came naturally? Totally. Absolutely. I sensed it. You know, I'd, I'd been around people. You know, you you spend enough time traveling and you and you you come into contact with a variety of people and there's certain people out there who just live with this sense of grace and ease in which there is full trust and surrender and a complete absence of like unnecessary anxiety and worry and these these humans who live in that state you know life just flows like we all know that person who <laughs> who has that life that just flows and for for me that's a result of inner work um maybe maybe also a result of of uh good genetics and you know a certain type of upbringing um but it's often a result of a type of inner work in which the person has themselves to let go of the struggle to let go of the need for control and for things to be a certain way and that time that i was talking yeah Totally. That that time I was talking to you about where I was free diving and just everything was just flowing was also a time of great surrender. Like I had I you know, the relationship was gone, I decided to just let go of like forget about my business for for the time being and I was just literally just going with the rhythms of life, just waking up as the sun came up and going to sleep when the sun went down and just like just being fully in sync with with life itself. With, with no control or agenda and for me that that was a that was evidence that one can design one's life to optimize for that kind of blissful joyful synchronized living um so anyway i began to teach myself how to do it and i developed uh away <laughs> and I began teaching it to other people and um yeah it's you know it's a work in progress I won't I won't like you know I, I still face struggle I still face periods in my life where there is control going on and there's fears and there's anxiety so this is a lifelong process and it's not as though I've cr- cracked some secret code and I'm you know the enlightened one there's but but I but I am infinitely more wise than I was when I began this journey um and I do have tools and strategies um, to help me experience more flow in my life. So, yeah, I feel like I'm on the right path. There's a couple of things I want to ask you, and it's things that uh, I've heard a lot lately, just tying a little bit of the stuff together. For me, you know, around purpose and, yeah, that, that, that idea that there is a purpose that you find, I think it's true and it's not true, you know, that there is, like, you go through life and there's different purposes as you go through life, and then there probably is one one greater purpose that is there to be found and like you say not externally but somewhere internally and what i've found is my purpose has become to find my purpose and not as a destination but the purpose is just to to find your purpose and look under rocks and travel Mm -hmm. and speak to people yeah which is that's been a big shift for me because i was definitely in the and and what i hear a lot is people going i'm just waiting to find my purpose or i'm just you know, if I meditate a little bit longer, maybe it'll come to me in a dream, and then, and then mm. I can dot dot dot. What feels true to me is that finding one's purpose, just that language, is is kind of like this external quest. Whereas what feels true to me is this 
allowing purpose to emerge mm. from within. And, you know, it's, it's a very subtle distinction, but what yeah. I'm talking about is, is creating the space in one's life. But also, like, yeah, going on adventures and exploring and stepping outside of your comfort zone and having different types of conversation with different people and really, like, living a, a rich and diversified life. Um, because it's creating the conditions. To, exactly. That's creating the conditions for emergence. Mm. Like if we like uh, this word emergence is something that's resonating so strongly with me these days. You know, I spend a lot of time in nature, like walking through forests and looking at trees and just like when we look at nature, like everything is a process of emergence, like a, 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 a giant oak tree coming out of a, a seed. Is a, is a process of, of emergence. Like it comes from, it comes from within. Uh, so how do we, I guess the question becomes, how do we set the conditions for this emergence of purpose to occur? Um, we talked about fear before and how um, your purpose is sort of like buried underneath your fears. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely think that that's one very practical route to allowing one's purpose to emerge. But I also feel like this process of deconditioning that we've spoken about a little bit is another is another very fruitful avenue to pursue. And this is like a very tangible process of understanding all the different ways in which we are programmed, you know, in very subtle ways. Like, you know, don't talk to strangers is, is something that every child in the Western world has probably heard from some authority <laughs> figure. True, and it's like, why? Why not talk to strangers? <laughs> you know, there's such the, this, and, that, and that's just like a very simple example of this energy of fear infiltrating our consciousness and, yeah, and informing who we you. are as people. Yeah, the, the stranger's going to hurt you. Like, and that's just one simple but yet profound way in which our lives have become more infused with fear than trust. You know? Like, but... Becoming aware of all of those beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves. And when, we, when, we, when I'm talking about beliefs and stories, like the dominant one in all of our lives is the beliefs and the stories that we have about ourselves. You know, the whole I'm not good enough thing that is kind of like a cultural plague. Like we, it's almost like we all have to go through that rite of passage, like to get to the other side. We have to go through that thing where we feel like we're not good enough. We're just not enough. We're not. We're dumb enough. We're too dumb, or we're just. We don't have enough of this or enough of that. And it's like the more people I speak to, and you'll know a lot about this, mate, because you're doing this a hundred, a hundred coaching. Um, what are you calling it? Yeah, hundred coaching, coaching 100 conversations. People. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll know a lot about how how widespread this this thing of I'm not good enough is, and. Um, you know, how do, I'm just fascinated by this. And I lived through this. Like, I had many years of my life thinking I'm not good enough. That's what kept me in this. That's what kept me from, you know, living to my full potential. Because, all right, I'll, I'll accept this, that what I'm doing because cause I'm not good enough to, to do the other thing that I secretly really want to do. And really it's almost this, like... This, this, was, this just came up for me this morning um, yeah. around... I didn't realize it was that, but it's, it's, it's such a simple go-to to, to it's such a good place to look, you know, that I'm not good enough. And for me, yeah. like I just realized that 
I've been pushing so far up against my edge, confronting a lot of fears lately. And, you know, starting a podcast, having a conversation like this is challenging. You know, it's not, as you know, it's not a simple thing, right, to take on. Um, yeah. Coaching people, coaching strangers, that responsibility is difficult. Leaving a career is difficult. And I just felt kind of constantly stressed out by all those things, right? Well, that's what I would call it, anxious and stressed mm. out. And I kind of thought, well, that's natural. You know, you're doing stuff that's difficult and you're pushing, you're, you're challenging yourself, so you're going to feel, you know, you're going to feel some, you're going to mm. feel something, right, about that. And, but how I compensate with that kind of anxiety is through eating. That's my go-to is just <laughs> shoveling, you know, shitty food into my mouth until I feel bloated and disgusting. And, mm. um... I only just sort of started thinking the last day or two that, oh, actually, it's because I think I'm not good enough. It's because, mm. like, I'm constantly, that the fear is I'm not good enough and I'm just I'm papering over it. So I'm just, I'm doing mm. these podcasts, I'm doing conversations, and there's this fear there, and I'm just kind of pushing through it. But actually, it's this, mm -hmm. this big weight of I'm not good enough sitting there, and I'm just trying to pretend it's not there and just push through it. Totally, man. Totally, man. I think it's an ever-present thing. Like it's, it's you know, it's it's our ego, right? Um, and our and our ego is is there to to protect us. And it's almost like that's a that's an ever-present thing. Certainly for me, as I've as I've shifted into different like levels of awareness and I've taken on different challenges and had success in different ways, like that voice is always there. It's just it's just like your response to it can change. Mm. You know. And, and I've got a lot of automatic mechanisms that I have that remind me of the opposite, that I am and more than enough. I cannot be less than enough. I am infinite. I use mantras. I write down how amazing I am all the time. Like not, not to toot my horn, but to, to, but to rebalance the equation. Because that whole I'm not good enough thing, it's just, it's just so imbalanced. It's like So we have to actually go through this process of reminding ourselves of all the ways in which we are wonderful human beings, you know? And so this is like reminding ourselves of our wins, going back to our childhood and reminding ourselves of all the awesome things that have led to this reality that we're currently living, um, reminding ourselves of, of our values, like just doing a whole bunch of like very intentional work to, to rebalance that equation that tilts to the negative. Um, and I, I feel that's, this, um, this cultural piece pop up, this like New Zealand, Australia <laughs> cultural piece pop yeah. up when you say like that of being like, no, be modest, be humble, totally. don't be arrogant, don't talk yourself totally. up. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, massively, man. It's like, you know, we, it's, it's interesting you talk about that sort of like tall poppy syndrome and the, and the Brits are, are just the same, man. They'll, they'll cut you down with um, quicker than you can get up. But whereas in America, we see this sort of like, you know, it's, it's different there, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of it's kind of like irritating, but... <laughs> you got to hand it to them. They've got this real like culture of like, um, I'm going to fail to succeed and I'm going to get knocked down and come back stronger, <laughs> you know? And it's why there's so much, you know, it's, you know, Elon Musk is not doing what Elon Musk is doing in, in, in Auckland or Sydney. Um, well, he's, he's celebrated, isn't he? He's celebrated in those countries. Yeah. Like yeah, exactly, man. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think, yeah, celebrating our wins is like just, it's, it's, it's an awesome practice, you know, and celebrating other people's wins and allowing the people that we love in our life to know how much we appreciate and respect them and, and all the, like, saying it, letting people know, like, like, I'm constantly telling my best friend, Steve, like, 
the, the specific things that I appreciate about him as a human, mm. you know, like, and I'm being very, very specific there. Like I'm getting away from this whole laddie culture where you're like, oh, you can't talk about things like that. And being like, man, I really, really appreciate like your, your honesty and your integrity and your, and all these sorts of things. Like I can't think of any off the top of my head now, but like just being honest and authentic, I think is like, we love you, Steve. Yeah. We love you, Steve. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, another thing I've got written here, and uh, again, it's something I keep hearing, and I'm just interested to get your perspective on it, is a bunch of people have said to me this week, oh, you're so lucky that you've got something else to go to outside mm. of your career. Like, mm. I, I don't have anything. I'm not good at anything else, so I've got to stay in this job. And I was yeah. Like, yeah, it's just I've heard it's popped up a lot, and I thought I'd just throw it's, it out it's there the same to as, discuss. Yes. It's the same narrative as the, oh, but, you know, it's easy for you because you're passionate about something and I'm not, and, you know, there's, I'm just not passionate about anything. Yeah. And it's like, hang on a second, passion is not something that's just hand-delivered and gift-wrapped in some little box that says, here's your passion. It's like, you've got to go out there and be a beginner at stuff and be crap and learn and fail. And like, like surfing, for example, is a passion of mine, but there was like years and years of basically just getting like salt water in my up my nose and flailing around like a like a seal like before it could act, I could actually reach this point of actually having joy and passion for it um like that's just the same as as that thing that you described the the, the whole the whole beauty of it is the going out and creating the thing from nothing and you know like like facing the fears and being bold and adventurous and that's that's where the change comes. It's, it's, it's that actual stuff. Like there's this dude called Gotha. He, he, he had this amazing quote, which I had pinned up on my wall when I was going through tough times. But it, it said something like, um, whatever you can dream, go forth and do it. Um, boldness, boldness has a genius to it. Boldness has this sort of inherent quality in it that changes you as a person that enables you to attract opportunities and it's actually the boldness the bravery the courage that actually allows that whole process to actually happen so to all the people who are feeling like passionless don't feel lucky that they have this thing it's like well you haven't yet been brave enough and bold enough to go out there and experiment with enough stuff and fail at enough things to actually learn that thing that you're going to be passionate and good at yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. you're right Perfect answer. And I think it's like a, it's another way to kind of not an ex. Well, I guess it is an excuse. It's a way to kind of go, oh, that's for you, not for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, man. Yeah, it's we can talk, talk forever about this. Uh, is there anything um, that you're up to at the moment? Like you've been very gracious coming on the show. Is there anything yeah. you want to share? Or you want the people to go and check out of yours? That, or people want to find more of you? Where sure, can they man. go? Yeah. So, so all of my work is is at. Uh, www.flowstate.co it's flowstate.co um and that's you know i've got a podcast the flowstate performance podcast Uh, i'm going yeah i'm going through a bit of a shift at the moment i'm sort of like moving into this new realm of um working with with companies and organizations to transform the culture of them um and to work with leaders of businesses to help them um transform their level of awareness because I, I'm, I'm basically just interested in how I can contribute in the most meaningful way in my life. Um, 
I've just reached this stage where I just want to collaborate with people. I just want to like do stuff that actually makes a difference. And I felt like working with businesses and organizations and teams and this, this concept of collective flow is, is, is really where I'm focusing all of my energy at the moment. But it's this idea of like, I mean, you're a Kiwi, but so I can talk about this, but what is actually going on when the All Blacks or some other elite team um, get into this state of harmony and resonance where everything clicks and they just reach this absolutely transcendent state where everything works. And I'm just fascinated by actually like the science and mystical nature of that kind of thing. Um, because when I think about the challenges that we face as a, spe- as a species, like when, we, when I think about planetary challenges and I think about how we've got to step up as a species to confront these things like climate change and poverty and things like that, it's like, well, we really got to do it collectively. And we haven't yet learned how to really cooperate and co-create mm. as efficiently as, is, as, as nature shows us is possible. When you look at flocks of starlings or you look at schools of fish and you look at like how nature actually works. Humans, they're like these ego-driven individuals all just trying to optimize for, you know, living our individually best life possible. And I just really am fascinated by how we can collectively flow together as a species. So, yeah, I'm creating this project called the Collective Flow Project. And I'm kind of like open sourcing it. I'm inviting anybody out there, scientists, artists, explorers, anybody who's interested in this idea of human cohesion and resonance. And it's going to be this this open source project, this kind of like mashup of art, play, science. And we're going to create these experiments where we kind of like reverse engineer collective flow and figure out exactly what is going on under the hood of it so that we can achieve more of it and solve our problems wow. together. That sounds incredible. Yeah, you're the perfect person to do it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, brother. So yeah, if anybody's out there and feels feels uh, resonance from what I've just said, then yeah, just shoot me a message, Jiro at theflowstatecollective.com or just jump on the, the flowstate.co. Beautiful. There'll be pe- people, um, heaps of people interested in that, so we'll put all those details in the show notes. Um, the last question I just want to ask you, it's a question I ask everybody, it's everyone's favorite question, is yeah. about your dark side. Um, and it's not something that men really talk about that much but it's something we all have we all struggle with so uh do you have a dark side that you acknowledge and embrace i I wouldn't so much call it a dark side but i wanted to just share something a struggle that that i've been going through and it and it's you know potentially linked to some sort of dark side but you know i got married uh, 10 months ago in Bali and in many ways it's a fairy tale life that I'm living in. it was a fairy tale wedding and it was just all beautiful and full of love and joy but you know what the last eight months have been the most challenging times of my relationship that there ever have been and you know it's almost like you just can't talk about that because you know you just got married and you just look so happy and successful and all that sort of thing and it's like wow the truth of the situation is that me and my wife are like learning how to live together we're learning how to be together how to we're learning about all the ways in which we are different and it's confronting man and it's um it's a challenge that i'm not masterful at yet and uh yeah so that's that's my big share there that's that's something that i'm that i'm learning about every single day yeah that's a big one thanks for sharing that well, I hope you'll come back and uh, talk to me again, Jared, because this has been awesome. I know a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this episode. So 
Thanks very much for coming on and sharing your gifts. No worries, uh, no worries, Nathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I really valued the the questions and the and your energy and and everything about it. And uh, yeah, it was really cool to to chat with you. So there you have it, folks. My fascinating conversation with the wonderful, interesting, funny Jero Taylor. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You can find more about Jero and what he's up to at his website, flowstate.co. And go and follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and send him a message. Let him know that you loved the show and you loved his message. I know he will appreciate that. Uh, as always, share this around on Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes. Go and give us a rating and a review when you get a chance on there. I'll love you forever if you do that. And I'll be back with you next week for episode 21 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Mm-hmm.